Wow. Man, I appreciate you being here tonight. It's a great turnout. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 5, and I uh, want to continue looking with you uh, this evening at uh, the passage uh, at hand. And uh, that's John chapter 5, um, Jesus' second visit in the temple. I want to look with you uh, in particular at uh, verses 28 and 29 tonight, and uh, which is really the tail end of a section of John chapter 5. The way that we would divide this up would be the first 15 verses of John chapter 5 uh, is the event that took place in the temple, what actually happened. Uh, verses 16 through 29 is Jesus uh, and the Jews. It's the record of their conversation. And Jesus is trying to explain what took place in the temple. Verse 30, I'm sure you're going to remember all this. Uh, verse 30 is Jesus' testimony that everything he's just said to them about what took place in the temple, uh, verses 16 through 29. Verse 30 is, is testimony that that is true. And in their day and time, a testimony by itself was not valid. And so verses uh, 31 to the end of the chapter are the other testimonies that are given uh, that coincide with his and, and validate his claims of what he's doing. Isn't that a great passage? And we want to look at verses uh, 28 and 29 tonight, which is the tail end of, uh, of our uh, study. And we're going to do some overview, and we have to, to kind of help us uh, with what he's been talking about. I'm going to read it tonight, and uh, we'll begin to look at it. I'm reading out of the NIV. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Father, we love you this evening. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the power of uh, your spirit and transformation that takes place in our life when we somehow allow you uh, that kind of an access. In the midst of all that takes place tonight, Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would change us from the inside out, that there might be a radical transformation, that we might walk out of this place different than the way we came in. Uh, we love you. Have your way. We give you all the praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, this overall section, verses 16 down through uh, verses uh, 20, uh, 29, is, uh, is a powerful section. And what's really been taking place is Jesus moves into the temple, the first 15 verses, and he does some things that are just, you know, again, uh, in the eyes of the Jewish leadership of Israel, unacceptable. But what you have is, from their own perspective, it, they are rules-centered, okay? And again, I don't know what kind of language you want to use to describe them, but they are not person-centered. See, they're not driven by God. They're not driven by his need. They're not feeling the passion of his heart. Because the bottom line of the whole thing is, is if they were driven by him, they would have recognized Jesus. And he tells them this over and over and over. So they are very much rule-centered, tradition-centered, control-oriented. It has to look a certain way. They have to do a certain thing. It has to be in a certain order. And they're really not concerned about God in, in, in any way, shape, or form. They're concerned about the rules and, and how it looks and, and that kind of thing. See, that's one group. Now, over against them is Jesus. And I'm sure that Jesus cared a little bit about the rules. But when you read the Gospel of John especially and you begin to listen to Jesus speak long enough, it's almost like he didn't even care about the rules. In fact, he's doing things that are almost unheard of in their culture. Uh, 
And it's, of course, very aggressive. And so what we have here is as Jesus begins to explain his actions to them, the language he uses is very, very critical. And he's trying to show that what's going on in his life, are you with me? What's going on in his life is he is not rule-centered. He's not, see, he's presenting a relationship with God that is not bound by jumping through a set of hoops. Uh, that's how the world thinks, though. Today, I was at your coffee shop right down the road, and uh, it's not a coffee shop, I don't think. It's a flower shop, coffee shop, cake shop, <laughs> gift shop, slash, all kinds of things. And uh, this, this young man was there. He's a really neat guy. He had green hair, and uh, he's tall, and... Uh, he comes, he makes me the best cafe latte I've had in days. <laughs> and uh, he comes up to me and brings me this cafe latte, and, and uh, we're, we're talking, and, and um, he asked me what I, do, what I do. And I told him I'm an evangelist. And uh, I had to describe that to him, and I'm down here at the Church of the Nazarene Hold Revival this week. Man, all that kind of stuff. And he's like, all right, cool, right on. I was like, okay. And, uh, well, we get to talking, and we have a similar hobby, and I, and, and, uh, he was wanting to learn how to play the game, and I said, well, hey, if you want to get with me tonight, we'll do that. And he's like, wow, can I invite a couple friends? I'm like, sure. I was like, is the coffee shop, up, shop open? He goes, no, but my mom owns a store. We can go right down there. I'm like, cool. Hey, well, we'll do that. Well, he leaves, and he comes back a little later, and he's fidgeting, and he comes up to me and goes, excuse me, sir? And I said, yeah, what's up? He goes, I want to bring a couple of my friends, but they're not religious. Is that going to be a problem for you? <laughs> and I, I started laughing. And I said, well, that's okay, man. I'm not religious either. I'm in love with Jesus. And there's a difference. And he just sat there and looked at me. And he goes, all right, see you tonight. And turns around and walks off. <laughs> but again, see, his perspective of Christianity, his perspective of what goes on in your church here, every single Sunday, every time you show up here, his perspective is not my perspective. And I would suggest that it's not your perspective. See, his understanding, and again, I, I can pick it out of the crowd just like that because I see it all the time, is he believes, or his understanding is, is understanding of Christianity is defined by a set of do's and don'ts, uh, rules and morals, uh, interests, non-interests, those kinds of things. And that's how he describes it. But folks, you understand, in this passage, Jesus does not describe Christianity like that at all. That's never how he talks about it. See, the way he describes it, and we looked at it this week, uh, verses 16 through 19, is all about this word of poieo. And I really like the word, and we're going to look at it again tonight. But it's, it's described by what's going on in the life of, of a believer. Again, there's two words for do. There's the word proso, and there's the word poieo. Proso really has to do with just uh, something that's done. It's not concerned with why it's done. It's not concerned with uh, the motivation behind it. It's just something that's done. Whereas poieo is really concerned with the inner motivations, okay? And that's the word that John uses to describe, or, or the word Jesus uses, rather, to describe what's going on in his life. He says, you know, what the Father poieos, I poieo. In other words, the creative activity that's going on in God that makes him do what he does is the creative activity that goes on inside of me that makes me do what I do. Now, folks... As you begin to move throughout the gospel, and especially move down the road some, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, I poieo what my father poieos, and you poieo what your father poieos. I do what my father does, you do what your father does. And they say, well, our father's Abraham. And Jesus says, no, your father's the devil. <laughs> Tad bit aggressive, you might understand. But he says, what makes the devil do what he does makes you do what you do. And they were extremely religious people. Do you get what he's saying here? 
It's not about what you do. It's not about the blanket rules. It's not about the things that you endorse. It's not about those kinds of things. It's all about intent. It's all about desire. It's all about that. That's how he describes the plan. That, that's, what, that's the unfolding plan of God and what he wants. Verses 16 through 19. Uh, just a, a brisk walk, if, if you will, through this passage. You come down into verse 20, and you'll notice that some of the language that Jesus uses to describe his relationship with God is not formal. Uh, it's very casual language. In fact, it's intimate language. He doesn't refer to, uh, to God as God or, or you know, any of those type of formal terms. He refers to him as Father. Now, that's Abba language. Um, and again, this is making them so upset because back in, verses, in verse 18, uh, in his, uh, after his response in verse 17, when they ask him you know, uh, why he's doing what he's doing, he says, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. And so they ask him, why in the world are you doing these things on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, well, you know, it's my dad. He's doing the same kind of things. <laughs> that's, it. That's, his, that's his way of responding. And, of course, they want to kill him. They're so angry with that, you understand. But his language is so intimacy. It's not this formal, rigid relationship with God. It's this intimate, fluid tightness, the kind of tightness that you have between a father and a son. The same things that are going on in the father are the same things going on in the son. And the son is going to be a spitting image of his dad. Uh, I can tell you, I can tell a lot about you through your kids. And uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if you were a spitting image of your dad? A spitting image of your heavenly father. See, that's Christianity type stuff. You're not, see, you're not slaves. Uh, you're not, uh, you know, grandchildren. <laughs> you're not adopted, that kind of stuff. Um, See, you're, you're one of the family. When you are born into the kingdom, what makes him tick makes you tick. Wouldn't it be something if you could have the mannerisms of God? The limp that he has is the limp you have. All his little quirkiness is all your little quirkiness. Yeah, isn't that exciting? See, that's, that's what he's talking about here. Uh, by the time you come into verses 21 through 23, he begins to talk about this, this relationship that, uh, that, that God wants with, uh, wants with us, the ordained relationship as, as God has dreamed it for, uh, for it to be in the plan of God uh, has a couple elements to it. It has the element of life and death and judgment to it, and he talks about that. Verses 24 through 27, uh, leading up to our passage, is all about the intimacy and the plan of God that's unfolding in the life of Jesus and it's consistent with what uh, God's will is. Now, by the time you come down to verse 28, um, this is some of the language that he starts off by saying. Verse 28, he says, listen, don't be amazed at this. Okay, are you with me on that? He says, don't be amazed at this. In other words, see, this should not come to surprise. Uh, this should not come as a surprise to you. See, all that God, are you awake? All that God had began, all that he had... All that he had uh, See, he, God had been, the way to talk about this in the best way, is God, this is not a surprise type of thing. God had been talking about this back in an Old Testament before it ever took place. There are something like 300, I'm not sure exactly how many, 333 prophecies. Is it 33, 35? People vary, so we'll just say 33 and we'll say it's okay. Um, but there were 300 and somewhere around 333 prophecies about Jesus before he ever even came. Okay? So they shouldn't be amazed at what Jesus has been saying. So when he says in verse 28, do not be amazed at this, he, everything that he said from verse 16 all the way down to verse 27 should not be a shocker to them. And again, as we looked at last night uh, in the book of Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel what he intended uh, to do in the new covenant. See, he'd been talking about this. It was the dream of his heart when he had relationship with his people and he's leading them and all the things that he was teaching them. Uh, I really began, I found this fascinating. 
uh, when I begin to study some of the really particulars of the Old Covenant. You go down and you, uh, you go down in the book of, of Deuteronomy and, and even parts of Genesis, but really specifically in Deuteronomy, and you begin to look at this tabernacle that they put together. See, all the aspects of the tabernacle, really, you can trace back down and find their fulfillment in Christ. Even to the foundation that was laid and the, and the price that they all had to pay, the silver, and, and you, can, you can attach that all together, which is, which is phenomenal stuff. See, all that God did in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And they shouldn't be surprised at that. This is the dream of God that's been on display. Okay? So he says, don't be amazed at this. And then he says this, for a time is coming. Now, we have addressed this in in the past, in past studies. But we're going to look at it briefly tonight. The time aspect for Jesus was really, really significant. And I want to run just uh, briskly through this this evening. And I want you to flip with me in your Bibles, and I think it'll be helpful for you to see this, uh, the time aspect that Jesus is talking about here. If you go back to John chapter 2, back in the story of the wedding at Cana, and we looked at that this week, which is a great study for us, you're going to see that this time aspect here for Jesus is really, really crucial. Um, And it really ties in with the whole idea that what God is doing, Jesus is doing. Jesus did not come and just do his own thing. Jesus did not come and, and have his vision and ask God to bless it. Are you hearing that? Um, pastor said it this week, some, sometime during this week uh, already, that I don't want something to this uh, effect, that I don't want to get my plan, do my thing, and ask God to bless it. I want to find out what your plan is, what your thing is, and I want to fall in line with that. Okay? That's the standard throughout the scriptures. The disciples come and say, hey, teach me how to pray. And his prayer is all, all focused on uh, what are you doing? What's in your will? What are you all about? It's not twisting God's arm to get him to do what I want. Prayers are not wish lists. He says, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That kind of idea, if that makes sense. So prayer is, hey, what is your motivation in the midst of this? What are you up to in the midst of this? What's taking place in the midst of this, uh, in the midst of this situation? And can I fall in line with that? That's the idea of prayer. And again, this this idea of time for Jesus was really particular, okay? Because he was somehow moving in the flow of God's plan. As God's plan was unfolding, Jesus was was right smack dab in the middle of that plan as it unfolds. Listen to some some of these uh, biblical references that we're going to look at. John chapter 2, we we looked at this this week. Um, Jesus shows up to the wedding after sending his invitation with 12 or 13 people on it. And uh, there's this big critical issue of wine that has developed. And uh, his mother comes up to him, and this is what she says to him in verse 4. Do, uh, or I'm sorry, in verse, uh, in verse 3. Yeah, in verse 3. Uh, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now listen to what Jesus says in verse 4. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So there's something really specific about time or hour or, or a specific time in which Jesus is going to act, if that makes sense. Something very, very particular. And Jesus says, hey, listen, why do you involve me in this? Why do you pull me into this? Because my hour, my time for in, uh, being involved in this has not yet come. In other words, this is your plan and this is not God's plan. I don't speak unless God moves. Now, immediately after that, he gets involved in it. And so the only, que- the only answer we have for that is that's when God's time was. And that's when, God, uh, that's when God called him to move. Now this becomes even more and more uh, 
evident if you would flip with me to chapter 7. And there's, see again, 333 prophecies. Are you with me? 333 prophecies. The plan of God, what Jesus was going to do in the life, uh, what God was going to do in the life of Jesus was talked about in the Old Covenant, okay? What God was going to do in the New Covenant was talked about in the Old Covenant. So Jesus came and literally was a part of that. He fell in line with that, okay? He, he did not live according to his own standard in his own direction, in his own timing, but he lived a, a part of the timing of God. And so what's taking place in the gospel, he's literally, the idea is, is he's being led by God. So whenever you see Jesus involved with something, you realize that God is involved with something. Because Jesus is following the leading of God. Does that make sense? (laughs) For instance, chapter 7. I think this is interesting. Um, They miss that. I shouldn't spend a lot of time on this, but I'm going to tell you this. I, uh... I am supremely confident about being an evangelist. When I was uh, receiving my call um, to attend an evangelism, I felt the Lord calling me. Um, everyone uh, that I come in contact with, I mean really, was telling me, uh, don't go into evangelism. It, they're a dying breed. That's exactly what I heard. Pastors told me, hey, we don't, I don't, you know, we don't call evangelists. Uh, you do internships when you're at college. I did a field placement is what they call it. And the, the pastor that I went and learned under uh, for two months uh, set me down. He said, what are you going to be when uh, you get out of college? What are you going to do? And I said, I'm called to be an evangelist. And he says, I don't have them. <laughs> I thought, okay, it's going to be a great two months. <laughs> you know? And uh, I, I kept getting that kind of, I kept getting that kind of vibe. Professor said, don't do it. I'm telling you, the face of the church is changing. And my response was, I can't help it, man. That's where he's leading. I knew it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And over the past seven years of being itinerant evangelism, uh, God has confirmed over and over in my life that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And we talked about this. See, the idea was, as people kept telling me, you need to go into the pastorate before you become an evangelist. Well, I hate that idea because I can't use a church as a stepping stone to get to where I need to be. Okay? I don't like that idea. And besides, God did not lead me to the pastorate first and then into evangelism. He led me to evangelism. So there was timing. And my future as an itinerant evangelist is not based off you, no offense, but my future as an evangelist is dependent upon him and his leading. It's not based off finances. See, you can, you can really shaft me. And I've been shafted by the best of them. But the idea is, is that God is securing my future financially, not the church of the Nazarene. Folks, I believe that, okay? That my life is ordained and I'm following the plan of God regardless of what anyone else does. Hey, my life is fixed and I'm following Jesus. That's the idea. His, see, we sometimes don't think like that. Oftentimes don't think like that. And Jesus' own family didn't think like that. See, Jesus is coming. They realize, uh, they catch on that he, he's really on this Messiah idea. And listen to their understanding of it. Look at verse 2. It says, when the feast of chapter 7, when the feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. 
since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. <laughs> it's kind of like, hey, you're going for this whole Messiah, Messiah office, right? Well, hey, you know, say you've got a great thing going, and you're better than most I've seen. But if you're going to do these things, don't hang around here in Galilee. That's not where the big timers hang out. You go down there to the General Assembly down in Jerusalem, and you hang out down there, and you rub shoulders with the bigwigs. Show yourself to the world. Come on, get your act together. But listen to how, listen to, to the next verse in verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. They didn't get it. And his life was not determined by him pushing his way through and him making his end meet. This is what Jesus says, verse 6. Therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. And again, the issue of time is absolutely significant. Because for Jesus, the time to go to the temple was when God was leading him to go to the temple. For them, they did what they wanted when they wanted to do it. And of course, Jesus says immediately in this passage that that's evil, okay? Jesus says, hey, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Which means he's saying, hey, going up to the temple in the hour in which God did not want me to go is evil. Do you see that there's a whole different understanding of right and wrong and good and evil? See, you giving me a million dollars outside of the plan of God can be evil, I'd really struggle with that, but the idea is, is that what is good is going on in God, and what is evil is stuff that's done outside of God. What, what's good is living in the plan of God, what's evil is living outside of the plan of God. And you can live outside of the plan of God and be religious. They were. Okay? Jesus goes up to the temple, and he begins to preach, and of course, one more verse. Uh, he goes up to the temple and begins to preach, and he's very aggressive, and of course, uh, the Jews, as always, hate him and want to kill him. And verse 30 of chapter 7, at what he is saying, this is what happens. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. So again, the concept is, is that Jesus is living in the plan of God. That, get this, what's going on is Jesus is not coming and he's doing his own thing. He, 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 he's really getting his vision and he, he's getting his ministry straight. And then he turns and says, hey, God bless that. That's not how Jesus defines his life. Jesus defines his life as living in the plan of God and as what's going on in his life is a direct result of God's leading in his life. What if that was the only way you could describe the ministry in this church? I would hope that's how you would describe the ministry in this church. See, there's a difference between saying, well, Richland Center Church of the Nazarene, we're doing a lot of good things, over against Richland Center Church of the Nazarene, we're following in the footsteps of Jesus as he's winning our town for the kingdom. Okay? There's a big difference in that. There's a big difference from doing a lot of good things. The big difference from doing a lot of good things than following and living in the plan of God as it is unfolding. Do you see the difference there? This is the idea. This is what's going on in a passage. And time for Jesus is really, really particular. It's really, really certain. It's really, really important. And so, verse 28 of our passage, John chapter 5, he says, don't be amazed at what I'm telling you, for a time is coming. So the time aspect of God's plan as it unfolds is really particular. This aspect of God's plan is moving, it's coming, it has not yet come, it's in the future type of thing. It says, a time is coming, uh, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, Okay. All who are in their, uh, in their graves will hear his voice and come out. This is, a, uh, this is a time that has not yet come 
you understand, but it, it, it is coming, and it's in the future. He's talking about the particular time. And the time that he's talking about is the last resurrection, basically. That's not the language he uses, but that's the idea. It's the last resurrection when Jesus will stand, and he'll call, and of course, everyone who's in their graves will come out. Now, what's really, really uh, interesting about this is this future time. Okay, now put this into perspective. He's really concerned about time, okay? And following and living in the plan of God. Part of God's plan is there's going to be a future time where part of God's plan is Jesus is going to call and everyone who's in their, everyone who's in their graves are going to come out, okay? The future time. Now what's interesting is that future time, and this is supported by the passage, that future time is defined by the present time, okay? What happens right there, and we know this, what happens right there is, is defined by what's happening in the present. So literally, the things that Jesus has been talking about defines the future time. Okay? Let me explain this to you. Look at the passage with us. And, and you, understand, you and I understand this. That, uh, uh, well, I'll give you a quick illustration of this, something we can understand very easily, is that going to heaven and hell, those types of, that, those phrases which desperately need to be defined, going into heaven or hell is defined, about, uh, you know, defined as to how we live right now. Okay? We all agree that. We, uh, the, where we will spend eternity is defined by right now. So it's a future time that is defined by what's taking place right now. Are we on the same page? Listen to how Jesus talks about this. This is incredible. He says, when all who are in their graves uh, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, here's the deal. In that passage, especially with the English, it sounds like uh, at the last day, Jesus will call and all who are in their graves will rise, okay? Those who have done good will rise and then to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. But that's not, that's not how it's supposed to read. And I probably should have brought an alternate translation with me. The idea of this is, is, the, is the way it's supposed to be translated is not rise to be condemned or rise to live. It's literally the word live and the word uh, condemned, okay? The word live and the word condemned is a product of the resurrection, okay? In other words, the idea of being to live and to be condemned has already been settled, it's our, that future time, when they are, when they are uh, right, right, raised out of their graves, whether they are alive uh, or a picture of life or whether they're a picture of condemnation, okay, that has already been settled back here in time, if that makes sense. Okay? So literally, one is going to be a resurrection of life and the other is going to be a resurrection of condemnation. Now let me show you this. This is really significant. As you begin to go back into our passage, all that Jesus is talking about is in the present tense. Every single bit of it. All that's taking place is in the present tense. And the matter of life and death, condemnation over against life, is settled right now. Okay? Listen to what he says. For instance, let me pick a couple of these out. Look at verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word, that's present. That word here is in the present tense. It's right now. So Jesus is looking at them and says, listen, whoever hears my word, talking to them, it's very present tense. He's talking about that. Hey, they hear my word right now. And believes right now, him who sent me has eternal life. See, eternal life in the Gospel of John is not something you receive when you die. Eternal life is a present tense type of thing. Okay? It's something you obtain right now. Did you know that each and every one of us, if you believe in Jesus and are living in the midst of John chapter 5, verses 16 uh, through 28, 
If you, if you believe and, and you are found, that passage is going on inside of you, you have eternal life. It is a present tense type of thing. It is a present right now type of deal. So you, you don't get eternal life someday. You have eternal life right now. Let me know that's registering. Give me some type of, or no way, or you whatever. Do, do whatever you'd like. But let me, are you registering that? Uh, let me give you an example of this, and you don't have to turn here, but I'll read it to you. Uh, Jesus defines eternal life in this gospel. This is what he says. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son. Again, the time aspect. Uh, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So the way he defines eternal life is not mansion in the sky, street of gold, golden fifth wheel. <laughs> okay, not that kind of stuff. See, the way he defines eternal life is intimate knowledge and walking with and tightness that they may know you, the only true God. That's how he defines eternal life. So in our passage, when he's talking about, uh, you know, the, he, uh, the, the voice of the Son of God, they're all going to come out of their graves. Uh, those who have done good will rise. And the idea there is those who have done good will be an absolute picture of life at the resurrection. So there's going to be a resurrection of life, and there's going to be a resurrection of condemnation. Okay? You don't look convinced. Let me give you one more passage. Flip back to John chapter 3. This idea of, of these kinds of things being settled right now is talked about in the most famous passage probably in the New Testament, John 3, 16. Okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now get this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Okay, here's the picture. We all stand condemned when we don't believe in Jesus. When we are, when we are born, we are the picture of condemnation. Okay, anytime you look at a two-year-old, you can see that, okay? The self-centered little two-year-old, okay? We are the picture of condemnation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn us because we're already condemned. But the moment we believe in him, okay, we are saved from condemnation, which is the whole plan of God. So the, so the idea is, is God did not come in the world to send me to hell or, or, you know, he didn't come in the world to condemn me. That condemnation is not going to take place at the last day. I stand condemned right now. And the whole reason that God has moved in my life, the whole reason he has come, the whole reason he sent Jesus Christ is he might save me from condemnation. That makes sense? See, that's the idea of what's taking place here. So on the last day, this future time, and folks, this is powerful. See, the future time of the last resurrection, okay, when, when Jesus stands and he calls and all who are in the graves are going to come out, one, who's going to, one is going to be the absolute picture of life and one is going to be the absolute picture of condemnation. And from the passage, and again, I hope this is coming clear to you, but from the passage, you are going to be able to tell them apart. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely evident. One is going to be a resurrection of life and one is going to be the resurrection of condemnation. Okay? It's like one's going to pop out and they're going to be a picture of life, and one's going to pop out and they're going to be a picture of condemnation. did some reading uh, concerning this subject, and Martin Luther has some really good insights uh, on this kind of stuff. 
he talks about that at that last day, and this is kind of bonus material. It's really not, uh, doesn't change the passage too much. But the idea is that he believes, and I believe too, that it's not just going to be a physical or a spiritual life, okay, a spiritual renewal, but it's going to be a physical renewal as well. We're not going to live forever in these bodies. You know that, right? We're going to get new bodies. Whoa. Okay, that kind of, wow, that'd be great. We're going to have new bodies. We're going to be tall and thin and, and uh, that kind of thing. And, well, maybe not tall and thin. But the idea is we're going to have new bodies, imperishable, okay? And, the, and what, how Martin Luther talks about this is that at the last day, we are going to get that new body. Now, the ungodly who are condemned, who have not allowed Jesus to save them, they won't have that new body. They're going to have some type of a body, but they have not been allowed. See, they, they, were, they are not allowed. See, not allowed. They did not let God redeem them, both spiritually and physically, if that makes sense. Now, one of the things that he draws, and he begins to talk about this redeemed body, and again, this is just bonus material, and I don't want to get you too excited. I know how excited you get. Um, but the idea on this is that we are going to be restored, and the body that Adam and Eve had, the imperishable, non-dying flesh body, the way that God intended us to be, will be given to us. Okay? We are going to have that kind of body, not only spiritually renewed, spiritually redeemed, but physically redeemed. And he begins to talk about how there's... Uh, he begins to explore on what that kind of body looks like, and he says you can see it throughout the Old Testament. Okay? He says that the way that uh, man was created is he was the supreme of all creation. Okay? You with me on that? He was the supreme of all creation. It says he was faster than a bear. Okay? I should say stronger than a bear. Stronger than a bear. Okay? Faster than a cheetah. These are the words he uses. Uh, he was quicker and more agile than the deer and the fox. Those kinds of things. And he says, you see this throughout the, throughout the Old Testament at times, for instance, in the life of Sam, uh, uh, Samson, who catches the ten foxes and ties their tails together, who is strong. And he begins to talk about, see, God put man in charge of creation, and when man fell from whom God intended him to be, creation was frustrated. Okay? And that, all, of course, there's going to be a renewal of creation and, the, and patterns set right and those kind of things. But the lion is going to lay down with the lamb because the lion doesn't want to mess with the supreme creation of man. You understand? That man was the epitome. Now, whether you buy that or not, I think it's really neat. Oh, it's going to be great. But the idea is, is at the last day, now put this in your mind, at the last day when I am resurrected from the dead, when God calls forth and I pop out of the grave, I'm going to be the absolute image, not only spiritually, but phys uh, physically as well, of life, the kind of life that God has called me to live. I'm going to be the absolute picture of life. And the one also who's going to be raised is someone who's going to who did not allow God involved in their life, who did not allow God to save them, and they're going to be the absolute picture of condemnation. And in our passage here, the main difference between the one who is a picture of life and the one who is a picture of death is by what they've done. Okay? It's by what they've done. And you can read that right there uh, in, in verse 29. All will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Okay? Now, get this. He, when he says those who, have, who, uh, who are the picture of life, you understand, they will have done good. Those who are a picture of condemnation, they will have done evil. He does not define good and evil here. Doesn't define. He doesn't say those who have been in pornography will be a resurrection of condemnation. Doesn't say that. 
just says evil. <laughs> I'm a little more particular than that. I want to know exact what is evil, okay? Those who have done good and those who have done evil. What is good and evil? Well, when you look at these words good, those who have, uh, are not good, good, though what they have done, those words that are translated done, it comes back to the words proso and poieto again, okay? The ones who have done good, who have, that's the word, pro, uh, that's the word poieto, those who have poietoed good, which literally means, carries with it the idea of the internal motivation drive. It's not good things that they just did. In other words, they didn't go out and just feed the homeless. They didn't show up at church on Sunday. What, how he defines good is the, is the something that was going on inside of those who, are, who have life, something going on inside of them, literally produces the good, if that makes sense. You with me on that? That's the same language he used back in verses 16 through 19 to describe whatever was going on inside of God, whatever, uh, whatever was going on inside of him is going on inside of Jesus. And th those who have, determined, uh, who have been determined to do good, that's the word that he chooses to use, the poieto word. What's going on inside of God is going on inside of them. And it's, it's literally the creative nature of who God is is spilling out of them, and that's how he defines good. Okay? Now, th those who have done evil... That word for done is the word proso, which just literally means things that are done, just outward things that are done, um, activities, okay, just things, that kind of stuff. And so at the last day, let me bring this together and make it as clear as I possibly can. At the last day, Jesus is going to stand and he's going to call. The voice of the Son of God is going to call and everyone is going to come out. There's going to be a resurrection of those who have had the life of God that is motivating them, that is in going on inside of them. The same life that caused, uh, the same things that were going on inside of God that made him do what he was doing is the same kind of life that's going on in them that makes them do what they were doing. Okay? They are going to arise, and that's going to be the picture of life. And over against that, there's going to be those who just did things. There was no creative nature of God going on inside of them, stirring them, and causing them, and pulling them and, and driving them, they're just going to be the ones who meandered through life and just did sorts of things. Does that make sense? Uh, if you can't understand the way that I put that, let me just give you the bottom line concept. What if evil, and this is an eternal consequence, you understand, what if evil was defined not as, you know, killing people, Okay, robbing a bank. What if evil was defined not by rape or murder or lying or stealing, but what if evil was defined by living outside of the plan of God, living out of your own perspective, doing things that he did not do, okay? Have things going on inside of your life and have activities that are taking place which are not his activities. This is not hard for us to understand. So you have a young man who comes up and says, hey, I've been called to preach. Okay, we first want to say, well, that's great and that's wonderful, but what if God did not call him to preach? Then it's not good or wonderful. It becomes evil, and you have a man who's living in a calling that God did not call him, and that's very, very dangerous, and we all understand that, and that's not blessed by God. So what's being called to preach hinges on one thing, being in the plan of God. See, the call to preach... Is a, is a drive, it is a creative, inspiring, it is a, it is a knowledge, it is a, it is a <laughs> what some of the old timers called it, an unction that they were driven to preach. See, Paul says, I cannot help myself, you understand. 
And God drives him, God calls him, and God puts inside of, that, inside of that man or woman a drive to proclaim the gospel. And they respond to his leading, and they fit into the plan of God for their own life. See, that's what's good, you understand. And that, that, that's how we define our life as a, uh, as a carpenter. See, if you're a carpenter, you understand, and what if you saw your, your life not as just your job as a carpenter, not just as a way to make money, not just something that you did, prosso, not just an action to pay the bills, you got up every day, you really didn't like being a carpenter, the splinters aren't too great, and it's kind of cold outside, and you smacked your thumb all the time, and that's just something you did, and, and you know, your real deal was something else. What if you saw your life in terms of a poieto? In terms of God has built me and made me and created me to work with wood. And it's a ministry in my life. And what's taking place is I'm following the plan of God for my life. And that plan of God is to be a carpenter and to be a demonstration of who he is in the life of a carpenter. Are you awake? Are you with me? That's the idea. It's body language type of stuff. God calls carpenters. God calls accountants. God calls janitors. Way down there, God calls evangelists. He calls uh, pastors, big time famous, you know, and he calls, uh, he calls politicians. See, he call, whatever area, and you begin to see that in the plan of who he is, and that, that the plan of God for your life begins to unfold. At the last resurrection, those who are living in that plan of God and see their life as a demonstration in the unfolding plan of God and the time that he had unfolding out of their life and what was going on inside of God was going on inside of them and that's how they determined what was good. They're going to be a picture of life. And those at the last day who just kind of did their own thing did not live in the plan of God. They're going to be the image of condemnation. Now I don't know what that does to you but See, where in your life are you surrounded, are you driven by eternal values? I would get in trouble if I came here to make money. I think you should get in trouble if you go to your job tomorrow to make money. Let me take it a step further. I think you should be ashamed of yourself. If you get up tomorrow morning and go, well, I've got to go to work. Wish I could call in sick. That's not this. <laughs> you, do you think it's possible, maybe, you know, long distance chance, that God said, oh, I desperately need, I desperately need a delivery man. <laughs> I desperately need a delivery man to reach this person, this person, this person. I know, I'll call this, I'll create this guy right here and raise him up and stick him in the metropolis of Richland Center, Wisconsin, and hey man, I'm going to call him and I'm going to slam him right there and that's going to be your ministry. I desperately need a factory worker, someone to put together breaks, and I'm going to grab that guy and I'm going to slam him right there and your congregation is those you are living around each and every day. Is that far-fetched? See, I get in trouble if I work for money. You wouldn't have your pastor if he, if he worked for money. Well, I wouldn't have you if you work for money. And I should probably clarify that. He doesn't want you if you work for money. Because you're evil. Those persons who are driven just by the meander, things that they do, there's no direction in their life, there's no purpose, they don't see themselves in the unfolding plan of God, they're going to be the resurrection, you understand. They're going to be the resurrection of condemnation. They never did see themselves in the light of who he is. Ah, Jesus ends that whole statement right after this verse, verse 29. He goes into the testimonies that what he has said is true. 
And there's like six testimonies. He testifies to himself. The scripture testified that he's true. God testifies that he's true. John the Baptist testifies that he's true. Moses testifies that he's true. So there's all these clarifications that what Jesus has just said is true. He ends this whole statement with saying, everything that I just talked about, the intimacy that I have with God, walking and living in the plan of who he is, at the last day, I'm gonna, it's going to be revealed exactly who I was. It's going to be absolutely evident. I want that in my life. Father, I love you this evening. Could it be possible that we could be so tight that my life is only defined by your heartbeat? And what I call good is your heartbeat. We don't think like that. We look at the pastor who, uh, who has the congregation of 40, and, and after 30 years of having a congregation of 40, we look at him and say, well, he didn't grow the church to 1,000. But what if the plan of God was he, he would love 40 people for the rest of his life? Well, then that would be good. Jesus, would you define what is good in my life? And could my life be defined by the unfolding of your plan? And, as the, and literally, my life would be defined. The unfolding of your plan would be the drive of my life. What makes me who I am, what I do in my life, is defined by the unfolding of your plan and your will and your passion and your heart. Could that be going on inside of me? Because anything else in that is evil. Anything else in that is condemnation. Any enhancement to the plan of God in my life is evil. I want that. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm not trying to be extra educated or too confusing or anything in that. I want my life to be defined by the unfolding of this plan. What makes me tick. See, I, I want what drives me, what excites me, to be the plan that he has for my life. He came to the prophet Jeremiah and says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. <laughs> Wouldn't it be something if the prophet Jeremiah just said, oh, I want that in my life. And anything that is a deterrent to your plan in my life, get it out of my life. Are we living with that kind of radical focus? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Teens, I beg you. Let your future be defined by him. I have met teens who have dreams of being lawyers and doctors and all that kind of stuff. And is it bad? Well, how do you do it? How do you interpret bad? What if God's plan for your life is never to leave Richland Center, Wisconsin? Would you throw yourself into that? Mom, Dad, would you throw yourself into that? Father, we love you this evening.